Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. And I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, Hannah Ritchie, the influential researcher and writer, discusses her new book, Not the End of the World, how we can be the first generation to build a sustainable planet. Now, as you might expect from that title, it's asking us to look again at the tools available to us to make an impact on the world's most existential issue. Hannah is deputy editor and lead researcher at the publication Our World in Data. And she's also senior researcher in the Programme for Global Development at the University of Oxford. So she's a person who knows how to think smart about big challenges. Joining Hannah in conversation is Tim Harvard. Tim is senior columnist for the Financial Times, and his most recent book is How to Make the World Add Up. Do check out Tim's upcoming conversation, which is coming on the podcast with Adam Grant in the near future too. But now back to today, let's join Hannah Ritchie and Tim Harvard in conversation. Hello, Hannah. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Oh, well, it was my pleasure. I am I'm delighted we're going to be able to get to talk about this book, Not the End of the World. Uh, I don't know whether I should hold it on this side or it's probably going to be mirrored I've in the final I've also got a copy. So, yes. Yeah, yeah you, go, you go for it. So uh, I, mean, I, I love reading the book. Um, I mean, Margaret Atwood also loved reading the book, so that's probably more important than the fact that I love reading it. But I did love reading it. It actually took me back to... Um, it's going to sound rather strange. It took me back to my, my early days of, of courting because my, my wife was an environmentalist. And uh, when I met her, uh, she would studied this environmental master's degree and all her friends had studied this environmental master's degree. And so they're all environmentalists and they're all talking about food miles on organic food. And quite a lot of what you were talking about in the book basically just reminded me of me going, well, yes, that sounds, that sounds you know, very plausible. Is that actually what the data show? So we're gonna we're gonna get geeky. We're gonna talk about saving the world. We're gonna talk about the data, um, and I I will try not to talk any more about how I met my wife because that's of no interest to it to anybody. And so just tell us, you know, first of all, what's the big picture? What what is this book about? So I think to start with, I think the concept seems quite bold, but hopefully it will make sense. Um, my my core argument in the book is that I think we have the opportunity to be the first generation to be sustainable. Now, when you first think of that, that sounds quite controversial because I'm implying that no generation before has been sustainable. But the reason I make that argument is um, historically, and uh, societies might have been environmentally sustainable, so they weren't degrading the environment for future generations. But in order to do that, they often had very low living standards. So as an example I give is that for most of human history, about half of children died before reaching puberty. So living standards were often low. Now, what's happened over the last few centuries is that 
human living conditions have really massively improved across the world on many, many metrics. But that has come at the cost of the environment. We've burned fossil fuels for energy. We've cut down forests to grow more food. And so we've, we've, we've been balanced one way and we've tipped the other way. And the core argument of the book is I think we have the opportunity, if we make the right decisions and get moving, that we can achieve both of these things at the same time. We can provide a good life for everyone without degrading the environment. So you, you phrase it there in a, in a very practical way. And you come across in the book as a very practical person. Like these are things that we can do. Um, these are the steps that we need to take. Um, there is there is a, a much more optimistic framing in your book than in most of the books I I, I read about the environment. Though I mean, the, maybe the clues in the title, not the end of the world. You know, one of the first things you say is, "Look, it's you know, we are not actually doomed, and it's not helpful to think that we are doomed." So why was that one of the first points that you wanted to make that that, that the doomsday thinking isn't helpful? Because I think I've been and I've done my background in environmental science. I did that all through university. Um, and at the end of my degree there, I really did feel this kind of level of doom of I've done, I've done all the science, I've done all the work behind the scenes. And, but now I feel kind of incapable to change things because I really felt like nothing could change and these problems weren't solvable. And I think since then, I've just seen that feeling grow over time. Like I know from the emails I get from people that they really feel like these are big problems, but there's just nothing we can do about it. I see it often in headlines. I am I, I, seeing increasing levels of doom around me. And I think that's not particularly constructive to us moving forward. If we step back and say, we give up, there's nothing we can do about it, then that's a surefire way of making sure that we don't fix these problems. So my core argument in the book is we need to push back and we need to say, yes, these problems are solvable. Let's get going. The book reminded me in some ways of, of a couple of other uh, books that I'm sure you know. Uh, one was uh, Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now, and Stephen Pinker's book refers a lot to the data from the Our World in Data website, you know, which, which you are, you know, you're one of the, the main moving forces behind that website. Uh, and the other book it reminds me of is uh, Hans Rosling's Factfulness. Um, and I know a lot of people have read those books. So tell me a little bit about how you would compare your book to them, what's different about what you're saying, and, and what are the commonalities? So I think the commonalities is that a core argument is if you step back to look at the data, you often get a very different picture from what you would build just by looking at news headlines and having a, a rather narrow view of the world. I think where it's really different is that I only really focus on these human measures, so child mortality, poverty, maternal mortality, um, in the really first chapter of the book. And the reason I do that is because I think as environmentalists, we often just don't get that picture of what's actually happening to human well-being. So I think it's important to get that across. But in the rest of the book, it's completely focused on our environmental problems, which I think Hans Roslin and Stephen Pinker did much less of. Yeah. So so you, you've, you're looking at the same data and you reach the same conclusion, which is things are great as long as this is in some way sustainable or at least as long as we as long as it can become sustainable before we degrade the environment irreparably and then, then i guess then the, the the what's radical about your say, about what you're saying is actually we can make this sustainable we have got some big problems but uh, they're they're fixable and we've had big problems in the past and we've fixed them yeah i think i see us as 
at the moment at a bit of a crossroads where we've, as you've said, all of these trends are largely getting better for most people in the world. And we're at a kind of fork in the road where we can go down a path where these continue to improve and we manage to fix our environmental problems at the same time, or we don't fix our environmental problems. And actually you have the issue that some of these measures could start to regress. Hunger could start to regress. Deaths from natural disasters could go upwards. There are a range of human metrics which could be impacted by our continued environmental damage. And yeah, as you say, like when you step back to look at the data, there are obviously really, really worrying signs in a lot of the data, but there are also stories of success. And I think it's important to bring those stories of success out so that we get this understanding that, yes, these are big challenges, but we have solved many of them in the past and we can continue to do that. So let's talk a bit about uh, air pollution uh, and because there were some there were some key success stories there. And I, and I want to talk about what that teaches us or what it doesn't teach us about how we can deal with climate change. So I mean, one of the the really, I mean, I'm a nerd, so I know some of the stuff in your book, uh, and yet I kept coming across things that I oh, actually that one I didn't know, or I've never seen it that way. So one of the the points that you make uh, in the book that surprised me is you take you know one of the the cities with a reputation for the worst air pollution today, which is Delhi, and you compare it to Victorian London, and Victorian London was worse. Uh, and that's, that really took me by surprise. So we, we had an air pollution problem and we've done an awful lot to fix it in, uh, in the UK. So how did that happen? Was that regulation? Is that a technological change? What's going on there? Yeah, there's maybe like other air pollution related problems we can come on to, but the local air pollution in London, yeah, I think we have, we kind of forget that many of our cities in the rich world today, you go back a century and they were extremely polluted. Like London is one example. I'm in Edinburgh, so we were called the Old Reeky. So really polluted city. London was the big smoke and it was the big smoke because smoke was filled the air. And there are stories of um, the big uh, London smog where, I mean, you literally, people were walking down the street, they couldn't see in front of them. They were shuffling along trying to feel for the curve because the, the air was so polluted. And a big driver of that was coal burning. So one, like, now we think of coal burning as just producing electricity in a power plant. But historically, we would often just burn coal in our houses and it would go out the chim chimney and, and into the streets. Um, so you had this like, really thick blanket of, oh, yeah. of air pollution. You're younger than me. I remember this. I mean, I grew up, <laughs> I grew up in a coal mining area in Derbyshire and yeah. I had, uh, you know, we had a, uh, I think we had a, we had a gas fire. We didn't have a coal fire, but friends of mine had a had a coal bunker and had a coal fire. And that's that's what you did. Yeah. So the yeah. So what some of the success stories there is one is just moving away from coal. That the UK has made amazing progress on on moving away from coal. We basically don't burn any coal anymore, um, which has happened actually very quickly in the space of a few decades. Um, we've put in really strict. Uh, uh, pollution controls on power plants. So that's government policy. Another big source of air pollution has been cars on the road. And we often look outside now and think our, our streets must be the most polluted they've ever been. Look at the number of cars spewing toxic fumes out the back. But um, car manufacturers actually have had increasingly strict regulations on how much of this these pollutants they can admit. And, and if you look at the data, you just see that pollution has significantly decreased. Yeah, I was quite struck by the fact that there's this enormous fuss about the ultra-low emission zone in London. And I guess I kind of assumed that you had to be 
basically driving an electric car if it's ultra low emissions. But no, just the, you can drive a modern diesel car into London. It's fine. It's perfectly, perfectly legal, perfectly within the limits of the zone. So it just reminded me or, or underlined to me that you can have what a lot of people regard as draconian regulations, but actually modern cars are so clean that they meet those standards. Yeah. And that applies to local air pollutants, but it also applies to, to CO2 emissions. Um, so cars have also just become increasingly efficient over time, such that uh, you can also drive declines in CO2 emissions through these technologies. Now, there's it's not to say that air pollution in our cities are perfect. You know, In the UK, we still have at least, the estimates are like tens of thousands of premature deaths every year. It was more in the past. And the point is you can look at this these trends and say, oh, it's possible to make progress here. How can we squeeze out that last bit so we don't have tens of thousands still dying? Yeah. Now, you said you wanted to talk about other forms of, of air pollution. Um, you have a couple of case studies in the book. You talk about uh, acid rain, what we did about acid rain. You talk about the ozone hole, what we did about the ozone hole. So just give us the quick pricey there. And then and th does that tell us something about how to cope with climate change or are they are they false parallels? Um, I think the, the difference there is I think you can use the local air pollution example to show that it's possible to make progress. I think some people would push back and say, well, okay, like countries can do that at a local level because they care about their own people. But the struggle is when you try to work together in international um, collaboration. But the ozone layer and acid rain problem are like perfect examples of where countries really did work together, often not really in their personal interests, but realised that there was a collective problem. And the ozone hole, I, I don't remember it, like it was before my time, but... Um, it's so young, it's so young. <laughs> But I mean, these I were. I remember, sorry, I'm not, I'm not sounding like a really old man here, but I remember the acid rain. I remember the ozone hole. I remember when we were really, really worried about this. I was born in the, in the early 1970s. So I was, a, I was a school kid in the 80s. We were, we were really worried about this stuff in the 1980s. And yet we, you know, the, these problems, I think, I don't think it's complacent to say we've basically solved both those problems. Yeah, I mean, the ozone hole, the gases, the, the CFCs that, caught, that depleted the ozone um, layer, we've basically reduced them by more than 99% now. So we've kind of done the job of stopping those emissions. The ozone hole is still there and it will take decades to close, but really there's nothing more we can do about it. We've stopped emitting the gases, we just need to wait for it to heal. And the same with acid rain across Europe and North America, like our emissions of sulfur dioxide, which is what causes acid rain are in many countries have reduced emissions by more than 90 percent so we really emit very little of these gases now so you could essentially say yes these two problems we've solved and we just don't really hear about them anymore yeah. so the the argument so I mean, that obviously suggests hey you know we can solve these problems we can get together these were both, these were all collective action problems and so is climate change so you know basically it's the same thing it's just a bit bigger I guess the counter argument would be. Um, I remember I remember talking to Thomas Schelling, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, shortly after he he won the Nobel Memorial Prize, and he's a game theorist. He's interested in collective active uh, collective action problems, and he he actually said he, he felt that climate change was more like the Marshall Plan. He was actually involved in negotiating the Marshall Plan way back in the nineteen forties. You know, it's about burden sharing. It's about who is going to, who's going to stump up the cost and who's not. It's a much more expensive problem. Um, and he was worried because 
with the Marshall Plan, you have the US basically sitting over it, setting deadlines and saying, you guys have got to agree uh, as to you know, who's going to pay, who's going to get the benefits. And you know, we don't have that same time, time constraints with climate change. Uh, or at least we don't have an artificial deadline. We don't have someone imposing that deadline. And that maybe we won't, we won't really get around to solving it. You're more optimistic than that. One way or another, you, you think we have made a lot of progress. Yeah, and I don't think it's going to be easy, and I don't think it's a perfect the ozone problem or the acid rain problem is a perfect parallel. I think climate change is just much harder to solve. So I largely agree with his analysis there. Do you want to take a moment to to explain to everyone why it's a harder problem than say ozone? Yeah, so the problem with ozone is that we were using these specific gases, CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, in refrigerators, deodorants, a small subset of, of stuff that we used. And we got to the point where there was just basically a basic substitute. You could just take the CFCs out and put something else in in its place. And initially it was maybe a little bit more expensive, but it was kind of a one-for-one -one substitution within a really small number of goods. Mm -hmm. So... Once we did that, the problem was largely solved. Yeah. The problem with climate change is like we literally need to change everything. We need to change the way we produce energy, um, the way we move around, the food we eat, um, the way we build stuff. Like it's a full economy-wide problem. So I think that's part of the reason why it's so much harder. Yeah. So what gives me? You know, yeah. So how's it going? What gives you hope? Um, we're still very far off track from where we need to be. But what gives me optimism that we have a shot of actually tackling this is we've actually made quite a lot of progress in the last decade. It sounds unbelievable, but we actually have. So we're currently on track for around two and a half degrees. That's kind of the median estimate of where our current policies are taking us. Now, that's, that's very bad. That's global average temperatures relative to the long to run average. pre-industrial, yeah. It's where we're going to end up. I mean, that's not where we are now, but that's where it looks like we'll end but up. You could, yeah, by the end of the century. Yeah. And is that um, bad? Sorry sorry to ask the dumb question. Is, yeah. that, is that a problem? That's bad. That's really bad. Mm -hmm. um, we've set targets of trying to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees and well below two degrees, if not. We won't reach the 1.5 degree target. We're going to go past 1.5 degrees. So in that regard, I'm not this like crazy optimist. Um, I think if you'd asked me a decade ago, I would have said two, two degrees was completely unfeasible as well. I'm becoming slightly more optimistic that we can get close to that range, although we're currently headed for 2.5. Yeah. And the reason for that and the reason I'm optimistic, and I think what maybe goes slightly against the quote you gave earlier is that I think if it was true a decade ago that it was very expensive to tackle climate change, right? If you look at any of the technologies we need to switch to, so solar or wind or electric vehicles, they were all far more expensive than coal or gas or a petrol car. Yeah. So it really was like, are you willing to sacrifice the economy and put, put your money on the line in order to solve this? And a lot of countries just weren't. Yeah, I was talking um, to, just for context, I was talking to Schelling in 2005. He'd been writing about this problem since I think the 1970s. And, you know, as, as you say, as of 2005, that's solar? I mean, solar is just a pipe dream, right? It's, you know, it's, that's, not, that's not a real option, is it? But now no. it is. Yeah. Yeah, so over the last decade, the price of solar has fallen by 90%. The price of wind has fallen by 70%. Electric cars are starting to re reach price parity with a petrol car. 
Um, so your solar and wind are now the cheapest technologies we can we can put in and, instead of coal or gas. So I think regardless of climate change, many countries will actually just start to do this because it's the cheapest option. So I think we need to stop framing this as a, are you willing to sacrifice the economy in order to solve climate change? Because I think that's a false dichotomy. And that's why I'm a bit more optimistic now than I was a decade ago. Are you worried about um, solving the intermittency problem? Because batteries, I mean, batteries have got a lot cheaper, but batteries don't solve everything. You know, that, the classic, you know, what happens at, you know, 5.30 in a December evening, everyone comes home, Northern Hemisphere, it's, the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining, it's cold. How, how do you solve that problem with, you know, without burning carbon? So I think that is a big challenge, but I think it's a solvable problem. Um, the, the, the intermittency problem is different on different timescales. So for, you know, evening out like peaks throughout the day on the basis of like hours, batteries work well. For longer term storage, you might be looking at other options such as hydrogen, or we're now talking about maybe methanol, like storing it as a liquid fuel, which is, is easier than a battery over longer time periods. Um, so I think, I think we will have a range of solutions at different timescales in order to balance that. And then I think that they are, I think on the demand side, we'll actually just change things a lot. I think um, like a problem you might see is if we all move to electric vehicles, the problem you'll get is in the evening, everyone will come home, they'll start cooking, they'll turn on the heating, they'll start charging the electric vehicle. I think what you're going to get is a very different electricity system where pricing will often operate and, and go with when supply is highest. So yeah. you'll get really cheap electricity when the sun is shining or the wind's blowing. And I think we'll actually start to adapt to, to that. So you'll shift your electric car charging to a time when it's not peak demand, for example. Yeah. And, so I think and it's probably to, to help people imagine this, it's more likely that your car will do that. You'll plug your car in and your car, car will check the internet and go, hmm, this is expensive. I'm actually going to sell, I'm going to I'm not going to charge. I'm actually going to discharge. I'm going to sell my electricity back to the grid. Uh, and then when the wind starts blowing again, suddenly electricity is cheap, then I'm going to charge up. And, you know, you could, you'll be able to program your car. You'll say, find the cheapest price or charge up at any cost. Uh, and, you know, you won't be constantly having to think about this as a, as a consumer. Yeah, I think, I think it's a big challenge. But I think what people don't appreciate is that there are a lot of smart people already doing this on the national grid. Like the fact that your supply and demand is fluctuating all the time, even on a fossil fuel based system. And it nearly always works. Um, so, so there's really smart people working on this balancing all the time. And the people I spoke to that work for National Grids, they are pretty confident that this is a solvable problem. Mm -hmm. now, not long ago, are you a park runner, Hannah? Do you do park run? Uh, I've done a few. <laughs> I, like, I really like running. I just yeah. don't really do park run. You don't really do park yeah. run. Well, I'm, I, I only do park run. That's my only source of running. Not long ago, I did a Sizewell park run where you basically run up the coast uh, of Suffolk, past this massive nuclear power station and back. Um, and I guess there's two types of runners in the world, those that are delighted to run past the nuclear power station and those that, those that are less than happy about it. Um, would, you, would you be happy to run past the nuclear power station? Would you be happy if there were more nuclear power stations for us to run past? 
Yeah, I think I'm. I think it's like a very contentious subject, but I'm pro nuclear as much as I'm pro renewables. Um, my general, or, or from 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 looking at the data, I think there's lots of concerns around safety, and I think when you actually break down the data in the book, I I look at like number of deaths per unit of electricity produced, and we've had a few big nu- nuclear accidents. I think more people as people assume more people died in those accidents than actually did. But when you look at the numbers, nuclear, it's just very clear, nuclear is much safer than fossil fuels. You have a, a pretty... And that's, cl- that's uh, without factoring in climate change. That's just looking at the, the people who die as a result of kind of the the mining of the coal and or are we including the deaths from local air pollution? What are we including in that? in that calculation yeah we're including supply chains in the mining and the big one the big one for fossil fuels is air pollution we're not factoring in climate change so if you also factored in climate change fossil fuels would be even worse so for me it's this um less of a framing of are you going to go for solar and wind or are you going to go for nuclear it's how can we move away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible and i'm pretty much pro anything that helps us get there faster. Yeah. So there's there's lots of different reasons you might or might not want to buy uh, install nuclear, whether it's cost or uh, reconstruct, uh, construction time. Um, so there's lots of decisions about whether you want to build a new one. What I definitely don't think we should do is shut down our existing ones because we're just shooting ourselves in the, in the foot. When we install renewables, we'll start to be replacing the existing nuclear when we should really be replacing the fossil fuels. I want to talk some more about various uh, environmental issues that you discuss in the book. I mean, there's so it's so fun. It's so interesting. It's really inspiring. Before I do that, I wanted to I take a step sideways what you do again and again in the book is say, look, here's, a, here's an issue. What's going on? Let's look at the data. Like, how, how bad is this? How bad is this in different parts of the world? How bad is this today versus 10 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago? Let's actually look at the data, the best data that we have. Um, so just as a really foundational question, um, how trustworthy is that data? How much can we believe those numbers? And are you... Do you feel that they're all absolutely solid or there are some that you're more worried about than others? I think I, I mean, I, I try really hard to make sure I'm only sourcing from reliable sources. I mean, you can find data that would support any argument that you want in the world, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I found a mistake and then I checked the references and no, you're, yeah. you're, I didn't. <laughs> um, You'll be pleased to hear. I'm relieved. Um, yeah, like the, the the sources I rely on for most of these things, like the the data is pretty good, pretty solid. Like we have good data on CO two emissions, for example. We have like reasonable reconstructions of of air pollution um, emissions. Um, where there's not really long term data, I try to piece together an overview from a range of different sources. So if you take air pollution as the example. We have reasonable reconstructions of emissions of air pollution um, by looking at the amount of fuel we're burning and where we're burning it, etc. Um, for the last 200 years or so, we don't have a lot of data previous to there. So when it gets to that stage, I try to understand what air pollution might have been like a bit more, a bit further in the past. And we can't use data for that, but we can use archaeological evidence. So in the book, I reference like. Um, 
mummy like lung tissue you can see that it's actually there's been air pollution there or looking at historical anecdotes um where I think I quote Marcus Aurelius as saying, oh, he was so glad to get out of Rome because the air was filthy and he could like think clearly again once he left Rome. It's clearly pointing to air pollution is ju not just this modern problem, it was also a problem in the past. Um, so I think it's a mix of, we have re really, for most of the stuff, we have like pretty good solid data. And where we don't, I try to be very clear that this is a big data gap and we need to fill it. And then trying to piece the story together, you need to draw on different strands of evidence. So let's talk about food, if we can. Um, your special subject, I understand. This is what your PhD was actually in, is sustainability of food. Yeah. Um, so there's a story in your book that just made me despair of you sitting next to in a canteen next to an environmental lecturer it was somebody who actually had taught you um when you were a student and this person ordered the lamb uh you ordered something vegetarian and then explained to you that it, it was fine to order the lamb because actually the climate change impact um wasn't that big because it was local lamb. Um, there's a lot, there's so much, I have so many feelings about that story. Just tell me, tell me why you told that story and what, what it makes you feel. I told that story, I think partly to demonstrate that even people that work in this field don't necessarily always get it right and don't necessarily always base their decisions based on the data, which if you look at the data would show that like the inference should have been the other way around. But I think it's also... I mean, we should I, say, so lambs, lambs are ruminant. Lambs are ruminant. Uh, you know, lamb, sheep, you know, they, they're, they, they produce a lot of methane. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. You know, this is, it's bad. It's bad. If you're worried about climate change, lamb is not a great thing to eat. And how far the lamb has to travel before it gets to your plate is, is really a side issue. Yeah, it's a fraction. The transport component is a fraction of the impact. Mm -hmm. So like my, my number one recommendation on food, if you want to reduce your carbon footprint, is to eat less meat, but specifically beef and lamb. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether it's local. Your local your local lamb might be better than lamb from a different country, but it's not better well, it than, not than be. the vegetable. I mean, no, it depends from, on where it is. New Zealand is probably slightly better than lamb yeah. from Wales. Sorry, right. everyone listening in Wales. <laughs> um, sorry. But, but but what got me about that that story was this person was 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 literally their job to know this, right? It wasn't just yeah. some random person who was vaguely worried about the planet and had made a bad choice because they weren't that well informed. I mean, I you know, I get it. You know, we can't can't all know everything, and until of course we we read not the end of the world, in which case we do suddenly know everything in very clear ways. But like, how is it possible to be a lecturer in environmental sciences and, and, and to profess to care about this stuff and to care enough about this stuff to, to be patronizing you on the topic and yet to have no idea? That's what I, I couldn't quite absorb about that. I mean, I think people just, they maybe have one specific area that they work in or lecture in and then the rest of the stuff they, they base on intuition. Yeah. And I think the intuitive, the, the intuition they are, 
seems right. And I get why people make that mistake. They imagine transport, that means flying or shipping or a big truck that obviously emits lots of CO2. Therefore, the further it travels, the worse it is. Yeah, the very um, word food miles is designed. I mean, it's very clever marketing. It's designed to remind people of air miles. So you immediately yeah. you think this joint of lamb is like, it's basically strapped in first class, being served champagne and warm nuts on the way over to my plate. But of course, right. it's not how it works, right? No, it's not. And and uh, when you look at, I mean, f food is a massive contributor to climate change. So it's around a quarter to a third of greenhouse gas emissions. But the transport part is only 5% of food emissions globally. Nearly all of the emissions come from land use change, so deforestation and using the land, and emissions on the farm. So when it comes to ruminants, as you say, it's, it's emitting methane. Um, those are the big contributors to the, foot, the carbon footprint of your food. It's not about the distance it's travelled. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested in how poor some people's intuitions are about this. I mean, I suppose my, so my instinct as, a, as an economist is that, um, and this isn't always right, but if something's cheap, it's, it, it's probably actually not consuming loads of resources because resources are expensive. Now, of course, some resources, like the capacity of the atmosphere to absorb carbon dioxide, are underpriced, right? So, so the price doesn't always tell you about the resource consumption. But as a, as a first approximation, like if something's really cheap, like if they're willing to give you the plastic bag at the supermarket for nothing, probably not a huge amount of oil in that plastic bag. It probably didn't take a huge amount of energy to produce that plastic bag because like all this stuff costs money. Um, and the fact that stuff gets flown all over the world and it's all, it shows up in the supermarket and it's all cheap, that sort of tells me that those transport networks probably aren't in fact consuming huge amounts of resources because if they were consuming huge amounts of resources, all this stuff would be super expensive. Um, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's the wrong way to think about it, but that's my, that's my first cut. And I, I often find that when I see people who've actually done the work, like you, the results are not often that different from that, that very simple kind of, you know, price-guided price heuristic. Yeah, I think that's a good rule of thumb. When it comes to the transport of the food, the reason that the food, the, the, the impact of transport is often not that big is that most of our, the food that's travels internationally is comes by ship right they don't fly it because flying is carbon intensive and, and it's expensive right they're not going to do that unless they really have to fly it to you because it's expensive so most of it's shipped and shipping is actually has a very low carbon intensity in terms of travel so most of the stuff that's coming to you is not flown it's shipped for that specific reason that it's actually expensive to fly yeah it is interesting the, the things that people do get wrong. I mean, I know one of your inspirations is Hans Rosling, and one of the things that Hans Rosling always used to love to do is ask people questions that they would get dramatically wrong. But you talk about, I mean, it's a very kind book. You're not, you are not mean about people in the book. You could be mean, but you're, you're, just, you're just better than that, Hannah. So it's a very sort of kind, generous uh, book, just giving people information. But there are some there are things you talk about in the book that were you inclined, you could be very rude about, like vertical farms or people's obsession with plastic straws. You, you just look at the, the amount of stuff that people put in, in the bin every week 
and you think the straw, is the straw really the issue? Or, yeah. So, I mean, why do we get this stuff so wrong? I actually don't have a good answer to why we get this stuff. I mean, the plastic straws, I, I don't get why we get that wrong. It, I mean, it just doesn't make any intuitive sense to me. I think there's some stuff that it seems a bit more intuitive to me why people would get like i i kind of get the local food stuff like mm-hmm. i i do get it it seems kind of intuitive yeah and there's it's, other nice, it's nice to think about supporting local businesses i mean that's all yeah yeah, yeah i think the, there's other reasons beyond carbon footprint why someone might want to buy local and that's fine but i think it's it's uh sad if they do that thinking that it's much better for the environment mm-hmm. when it's not there's other examples like people often assume that organic food is is just automatically better than non-organic food when actually the data would suggest otherwise. And again, I kind of intuitively get it. It feels green. It feels natural. I think that's what our environmental um, kind of inclinations are built on is like green, natural, like no artificial inputs. So I think maybe that part of it comes into it is that we, we have this kind of gut feeling of I often frame it as like this feeling of like we want to kind of go backwards in time. Like we we think this is the bath the past was really sustainable. If we could just get back there where we kind of all had our little farm where everything was organic, we weren't using all these plastics, we weren't using all this energy. I think it, part of it is maybe just this drawback to what we imagine was a very sustainable past. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things, one of the many things I like about the book is is that you, you know, having often explained to people, look, this thing that you're worried about, you shouldn't be worried about this. Um, this thing that we're doing is not really helping. Um, this other thing that's going on, this is really helpful. You know, you, you're sort of laying out the facts, but then you, you just offer people really practical advice, both in policy terms, like this is what the priorities should be for our governments, and also in, you know, in personal terms, like when you're making decisions about the food you eat, here's what you might want to bear in mind. You're not prescriptive, but you give people the information they need to make the decisions. So what advice, if I, if I were to come to you and say, um, look, I'm, uh, I realize this is a global problem, but I'm worried about the climate. I want to reduce my personal carbon footprint. What are the three things that I should think about doing that are going to make the biggest difference? Oh, three. That's a constraint. I think part of the issue... I you can have, have two or, or ten, if you like. I don't mind. I no, mean, I, think, I think the fewer, the better. I think yeah. I think one of the problems I often have with environmental messaging on individual action is that you have books that are like a hundred ways to save the planet and no one has time to make a hundred decisions. Yeah. I think part of the problem is there's no prioritization there. Mm-hmm. So if you could only make five decisions, my worry is that people are really well-intentioned, but they make the five decisions which don't make a difference, like the plastic bag and the plastic straw. Yeah. So the the, the five, I think the five core things I would say is one, eat less meat, especially beef and lamb. Yeah. That would be my one recommendation. The other big part of your carbon footprint is is road transport. So if you have a car, try to use it less. So walk, public transport, cycle. If you really need a car, an electric one is definitely better than a petrol or diesel one. The other big one is another big one is flying. That's obviously a big one, primarily for people in the rich world because most of the world do not fly. Um, home heating, uh, so a big thing there is like one if you can reduce the temperature slightly, but uh, a big thing you can do if you can afford it is to install a heat pump 
it's just way better for the environment than a gas boiler. And then another big thing is um, like home energy. Like if you can install a solar panel, definitely do it. I mean, a lot of these are constrained by finance and living conditions. A lot of them I can't do because I currently rent a flat, so I can't install a heat pump. I couldn't, can't put a solar panel on the roof. But I think these are just the... the, the these probably make up around 80% of your footprint. And if you want to do the rest, great. But I don't think we should do that on the basis that we assume we're having a massive impact with those small decisions. Yeah. And one one idea that you mentioned in your book that had never occurred to me, and I was like, why did that never occur to me, is hybrid, hybrid burgers. So uh, obviously, if you're concerned about animal rights, you want to be vegetarian, you're not going to eat a beef, beef burger, you want to eat something else. But if you're you're willing to eat some beef, but you want to reduce the the carbon footprint. It could be, you know, part beef, part chicken, part plant protein, or uh, hybrid burgers. Why did I never think of hybrid burgers? Where can I buy a hybrid burger? Are they coming? I think there are a few companies that do a mix now, but mm -hmm. you, I mean, you can immediately see how that would work, right? Like, mm -hmm. we need to move away from. We need to globally. We need to eat less meat, right? Yeah, and people are often quite reluctant to do that and we might see quite a slow change there but the point is you can still eat your beef burger and you but you could like we could we could half beef consumption if we just did a half and half burger yeah. and yeah. people would probably not really notice the difference the texture would probably be the same the taste would pretty much be the same i mean it would be a very very quick way to do it and should really have no impact on kind of uh people's uh, enjoyment of the food. And what would you say to someone who said, "Look, you've you know, you told you told us that everything's basically going to be fine as long as we do a bit of this and that. You know, we'll have chicken burgers instead of beef burgers, and uh, we'll install some more solar panels." And you are fundamentally missing the point. The, the point here is uh, economic growth. Is, is unsustainable, fundamentally unsustainable. Our current model is totally broken and degrowth is what we need. We actually need to shrink the world population and we need to shrink the world economy. That, is, that would be the pushback from, um, not, from not generally from economists like me, but certainly the pushback from a lot of environmentalists. What's, what's your response to that? Yeah, again, I get the intuition there. I think there are really different... I guess, flavors of degrowth. And what I'm quite explicit about in the book is that we can't go for global degrowth, right? The world is too poor for us to start to try to shrink the global economy. Like, if you do that, you leave billions of people in poverty. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a different question of, should we deliberately try to reduce consumption and shrink in rich countries, which seems more feasible, Um my one, unless you're my, a politician, then, I mean, then it doesn't seem feasible at all. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I think, yeah that's my, one of my core, my, my core points is that um, I just don't think that messaging is ever going to get through politically. Like, I cannot see a politician standing up and winning an election with that as one of their key slogans. And I think the, the time component there is really important. Like, I think many of the, the pushback I would get often from showing that the UK has increased its GDP while reducing emissions. So what we call decoupling of these two 
metrics. The pushback is that it's not happening fast enough and it's not happening fast enough. But I think my, my, my contest towards people arguing that degrowth would be a better way of doing that is what is the timescale for us to get to a place where a politician is willing to stand up, um, go for that as a core message, people to vote for them, and then actually put that into practice. You're not, that's not going to be a fast process. Um, so the argument seems to me to fall apart if you're trying to argue that decoupling is not going to happen fast enough. Degrowth will also not happen fast enough. Now, another key part of the, the argument of degrowth is that maybe it's less about GDP and we can just reduce energy use. And in some sense... Yeah, I think there's many areas where we can reduce energy use. But a core part of moving to a low-carbon economy is when we go through the energy transition, that will happen anyway. Our current energy system based on fossil fuels is incredibly inefficient. Um, Two-thirds of the, 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 the energy we, we, we burn is wasted. Like It doesn't go towards actually our energy services, so moving us around powering our homes and our and our laptops like as wasted as heat so when you decarbonize the economy you take away most of that waste so your final energy demand is going to be much much lower anyway so we are actually going to reduce energy demand anyway we're not going to have to produce this massive stack of energy that we are producing today and we still get the same welfare benefits that we all want so to me i think just a much better messaging strategy for this is look, we can actually tackle both of these things at the same time. And I just don't think that we're going to make any progress if we try to frame it as we need to shrink the economy in order to tackle climate change. We're nearly running out of time. But if, if you are game, I wanted to finish up by asking you to play a round of overrated and underrated. Okay, a perfect. Game, game, game <laughs> my, my friend, the economist Tyler Cowan, likes to play. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you some stuff. And I want you to tell me whether you think they're overrated or underrated. And if you fancy offering a sentence or two of explanation, then then by all means. Uh, but let's go for it. Okay, vertical farms. Overrated. Like they just consume so much energy. It's just not economically feasible, and it would just wreck the planet. Okay, chicken. Oof. Underrated. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people. Push, uh, like have a resistance to being told to eat less meat. From a climate perspective, you can actually do a substitution of meat and have a big impact. So if you substituted beef for chicken, so if you got rid of your beef burger and had a chicken burger instead, it would have a massive reduction in your climate impact. Okay. Going palm oil free? Overrated. Um, palm oil is a problem, but it's potentially less of a problem than the alternatives. Um, so I think the strategy there is not to boycott and get rid of it. I think it's to um, pr produce more sustainable supply chains. Okay. Um, hybrid cars? Like plug-in hybrids? Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I would have said underrated. I'm now overrated. I think we can just go fully battery electric. Okay. And uh, paper straws? Oh, overrated. Oh, they're just terrible. Like paper and water should not go together. I don't know who thought that was a good idea. <laughs> yeah, we don't actually need straws at all, do we? I guess no. that's the thing. Yeah, but there we go. Mm. Um, but what we do need, what we do need is this book, Not the End of the World. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, Margaret Atwood loves it. I love it. Uh, we're very grateful to Hannah Ritchie for writing it and very grateful to you, Hannah, for coming and joining us on Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much. 
Thanks very much. I love the conversation. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue, featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. <laughs>